Well, I, uh, I've been reading in my personal devotions, uh, one of the things is the book of Isaiah. And I remember as I was reading this book, uh, I had a, a conversation with my then 10-year-old daughter, Eden. Uh, you know, she's 21 now. She's married. God bless her. When she was 10 years old, she loved reading the Word of God. I, I uh, wanted to make sure that we instill this love of the Word to our kids. And I remember having this conversation with Eden. And she asked me, she says, Dad, what is your favorite book of the Bible? When you were a little boy, what was your favorite book of the Bible? And that was easy. I said, Proverbs. She goes, why was Proverbs your favorite book of the Bible? And I said, well, honey, because there's so many little tips there on how to do life well. I mean, little things like don't, uh, don't go guarantor for loans because it's not going to end well for you. Or another one will say, the fear of God is a beginning of wisdom. It appears a few times. Another one says, you know, to honor your, your parents. Uh, there's plenty of times when it says, uh, correct a wise man, he will thank you for it. Correct a fool, he will hate you for it. So lot of handy tips like that. That's what it was my favorite. And I said, well, honey, what's your favorite book? She says, Isaiah. The book of Isaiah? She has the book of Isaiah. And I'm thinking, what do you like about it? She begins telling me some things. She just, she doesn't know what I was just talking about. She was saying about some of the stories and she loved the prophecies that God brought. I'm thinking, you're only 10 years old, Eden. And then she's telling me how she loves the book of Isaiah. And so as I'm reflecting on it, as I'm reading, I'm, I'm being conscious about that. What did my 10-year-old daughter love about this book so much? And in the book of Isaiah, you're going to find that he is a prophet of God. And he was, he begins the book, I mean, we're talking like 20 chapters in, where he is prophesying doom and gloom. He's prophesying over different nations around Israel. He, he prophesies over the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because they rebelled against God. And so he was professing and proclaiming, prophesying what is going to happen to you as a nation for disobeying God, the rebellion. And, you know, and so I did expect that, but what I did not expect is when I came to Isaiah chapter 36, and I want you to turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 36, because in the middle of this uh, prophetic utterance that is going on, proclamations against nations, you see this story in there about a king, like why did King Hezekiah's story warrant mention in the book of Isaiah when it's already mentioned in Chronicles and Kings? There should be no reason for it. So obviously there's something about the story of Hezekiah that warrants our attention. And I wanted to draw your attention to that this morning. I feel the Lord wants to bring this word to you to this morning. So I want you to follow with me in your Bibles. I'm reading from the NIV uh, version this morning. Let's read together from verse 1. We're just going to read portions to capture the essence of the story. So from verse 1, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah. Now, I just want a little note here. Judah is the southern kingdom. There was Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. Don't be mistaken thinking that Judah was small. If you see a map of the time, it was roughly half. Half of the kingdoms on the north, half of the kingdoms in the south. So it is a significant kingdom. And Sennacherib is now attacking the southern kingdom and he captures them. Verse 2, then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army. 
I want you to take uh, note of the words. It's not a small one. It's a large one. So there's a reason why he sends a large army. It is there to intimidate. From Lachish, where they had just conquered Lachish, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 4. The field commander comes with this message, and he said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? It's a really great question to be asking yourself today. On what is your basis for this confidence that you have in Christ? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. Here's the next words that he asks I want you to take note of. On whom are you depending? And this is the title of the message today. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now. You are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say, we are depending on the Lord our God, he's using the name of God. So I want you to understand, when you see the name of God written down in the Old Testament, it is actually his written name, which is Yahweh, okay? They would have pronounced it in the transliteration and the Hebrew characters, yod Hey vav Hey. Okay, and then uh, in modern days they changed it to Yehovah or Yahweh, but it's very specific. I want you to understand that because in every nation of the world they had gods that they worshiped, lowercase g. And so you can be mistaken in saying God because they're also saying God. And so in the Hebrew characters, in the Hebrew word, it's saying specifically Yahweh. Are you, are you depending on Yahweh, that wilderness king, that wilderness God? So he's mocking God now. It is shifted from mocking Hezekiah and what he's turning to, now he's mocking God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar. Now, he's got his information mixed up. Hezekiah did not remove the altars of Yahweh. He was removing the altars of Baal, a different god. But this king did not understand that. Let's move on to the next chapter. Follow with me just a few verses. Isaiah 37 and jump down to verse 14. Isaiah 37 verse 14 and follow with me in your Bibles. So while you're turning there... The king is now angry because Hezekiah has not responded. He says, I, I am going to fight you. I am not willing to relent. I am not going to give up this kingdom. You can't take it without a fight, and God is with us. And so Sennacherib writes this letter basically saying, you are dead. That's the short of it. You are dead. Verse 14 takes off from that, and this is the response of Hezekiah. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. Remember, they wrote on scrolls back then. So he spreads these things out before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. I want to encourage you, if you get bills in the mail, you're thinking, how am I going to pay this? I've done this before. You probably, some of you probably done that. I presented before the Lord in prayer. 
When I get a letter that is very disturbing and is very discouraging, I take the letter and I lay it out before the Lord as if he's literally going to be there to read it. Why? Because this principle in the Bible where they did these things. So he presents it before the Lord and begins to utter this prayer. Now, some of you think that it is the long prayers that make the difference. I want to tell you, it's not always a long prayer. God can hear the prayer of your heart. I guarantee you, this is not the only time he prayed, but the, the scripture records this was the prayer that changed the tide of battle. Have a look at it as we, as we read this prayer out loud. Oh, Yahweh, almighty God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God. He's making a distinction against every other God. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. See, no other God or idol in that day could lay claim to that fame. You alone made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Hezekiah is it's weighing deep on him, this problem, because you're looking, he's facing the total annihilation and enslavement of a people. He would surely be wiped out if God doesn't step into the battle. Verse 18, it is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, again, the name Yahweh, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And Father, we invoke the name of Yahweh this morning. We are asking, Lord God, that you would come and that you would come in power this word. I pray, Father God, that that thing that you want us to catch this morning will be caught in the spirit in our hearts. And may that seed bear fruit, Lord, through a changed life. Father, we are praying that the words that are spoken spoken from this pulpit will not fall to the ground, but that Lord God, it would bear fruit from changed lives and those lives would change the lives of others. We pray that you would come. We pray that you would shift situations around, that the name of Yahweh would be uttered on the lips of the city and of this nation in Jesus mighty name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. I want you to understand the context behind the story. If you understand who Hezekiah is and where he comes from, you would begin to understand that this is no ordinary king. He is different from his predecessor and different from many other of his predecessors. In fact, if you read the Bible, you will find that his great-great-grandfather Amaziah was also a man of God. The Bible says he followed God's laws, Amaziah the king. But his life did not end well. He did not follow God at the end of his life. And then we enter into the next king, Uzziah. And Uzziah came, and he also followed after God. But at the end of his life, he did not follow God, and his days did not end well. And then along came his grandfather, Jotham, who was also a man after God's heart. Well, it didn't say that. It says that he followed God's laws and commandments. 
They did not destroy every high place. They did not destroy every temple. But the Bible says Jotham was the only one up to this point in time who held fast to the end. He stood for God to the end of his life. He was an honored king. But his son was just horrible. Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's father, was a wicked king of Israel who followed the practices of the worship of Baal or Baal in that day. And he was relentless with these things. He was quite wicked. In fact, he was so wicked, God snuffed out his life after only 14 years of reign. Now, sometimes God will do that to prevent further harm over a city or over a nation. I wonder, is God doing that today? Does he snuff out a life when he sees they refuse to relent, they refuse to change, and keeping them alive longer causes more damage? I know we don't talk about a God like that. We want to talk about a God of mercy and a God of grace, but it's difficult to understand that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. You can't separate one from the other. You can't say that God made a mistake in the Old Testament, Jesus fixed it in the New. No, because Jesus is God. And Jesus reveals the heart and the character of who Yahweh actually is. But Ahaz... I don't know how it happened, maybe because he saw the failure of his grandfather and his father, and he thought to himself, stuff this, I'm not going to follow their gods. I'm going to do my own thing. And the wickedness of this king, he made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He put idols everywhere. In fact, he sacrificed his own sons, plural, into fire. Can you imagine that? Sacrificing your own son. Sometimes when your kids misbehave, you're probably thinking that too. I'd like to sacrifice my son. But no, you wouldn't actually do it. It might be a thought, but you wouldn't actually do it. But he did. He plundered gold and silver from the temple because in a time of crisis, rather than cry out to God, he ends up to Yahweh, he ends up uh, thinking to himself, okay, I've got to think human means. What can I do to ease and appease the armies coming against him? Two armies came against him. And so what this king did, Ahaz, is he plunders the gold and the silver. Remember, implements were made from gold and silver in the temple, even the washing basin and things like that. There was gold and silver everywhere. He was ripping them off the temple and taking the utensils and giving them to the king of Assyria to fight off his two attackers. The Bible continues to say he took away the furnishings in the temple. He's plundering everything, taking it all. He, in fact, he shuts the doors of the Lord's temple so no one can worship there, setting up altars everywhere so that the entire nation ends up uh, following other gods and not worshiping Yahweh. I want you to know when God raises up priests and kings, our job is to set the world on fire. Our job is to show people how to worship God. That is the job of every father. It is the job of every king and every priest. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a king and a priest. See, we can take these words and think to ourselves, oh, it doesn't apply to me, but it does. It's very powerful and very strategic. And we need to understand when you see words like this, God is expecting us to apply it to our lives because back in the day, the Holy Spirit would fall only on certain kings. But it's changed now under this new environment because under the New Testament, you are all kings. You are all priests. And so when you see God speaking to kings and priests in the old, it's for us today. Let's continue on. 
So Hezekiah comes from this, he inherited a, a pagan kingdom. And this is a king who wanted to follow God. He was extraordinary with these things. He wanted to worship the Lord. And so he begins setting about a, a six steps to revival. And he wanted to change that which was wicked and evil from his fathers before him. Glenn Berteau is a pastor in California. He makes a statement. He says, if you have a bad family tree, plant a new one. Now, some of us were victim, oh, but my father was this way, my mother was that way. Plant a new tree. You are a new creation. You are first generation Jesus. Think about that. God doesn't have any grandsons. He only has sons in the kingdom. You are first generation sons of God. The Bible says that Hezekiah was so different that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. That's a statement to make. That's huge. Because every other king, they started so well, but their life ended poorly. And the Bible says this of him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept, he kept the commands of the Lord given to Moses. And what was the result? Verse 7 says, this is 2 Kings 18. The Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So let me quickly give you this six steps to personal revival. Okay, it's part of what we want to talk about today. So if you want a personal revival, we're praying as a church that revival would come. We're praying that you would experience revival is when you're being revived, when you come alive again. It's that point when you are excited to pick up the Bible to see what will God tell me today? What will he speak to me? What will he teach me today? It's that moment when you were excited about going into the prayer closet. You're saying, oh God, I tell you, when I go to prayer and I'm just pacing up and down in my, in my house, I'm waiting till my family leaves and then that's private time for me and my daddy God. And I'm just pacing in my house and I'm praying. And the first thing I say, oh God, it is such an honor to come before your presence you might be conducting business right now, but the Bible says, let us enter boldly into the throne room, and I know that I can have your ear. What do you want to say to me today? And I'm spending this time with him, and I want you to experience a revival. So here are six steps to personal revival. You ready? Step number one, this is what he did to bring revival to the nation, but it applies to us individually. Fix what was broke. His father had destroyed the, the temple doors when he barred it in. He was breaking things in the temple. He made a horrendous mess. And if you want to experience revival, we must fix what was broken. You know, fix the things that are repaired. It might be a relationship in your life that needs to be repaired. You have, you have, someone grieved you and you refused to forgive them and you had this relationship that was broken. Restore the relationships. Maybe you're far from God. The first step is to fix that relationship. Here's step number two. I'm not focusing most of the message here, but number two, cleanse the temple. The Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So we're talking about you, your body. And what he did was he removed every unclean thing. You see the metaphor here? The Bible is trying to encourage us, get rid of the junk in your life that keeps you trapped. Get rid of the alcohol if you're turning to alcohol to rescue you. Get rid of the drugs. It's not helping you. 
Get rid of the porn. It is not comforting you. It is not fulfilling your life. Get rid of the unforgiveness because it's holding you captive. And along with that, we forget it's not just unforgiveness. Bitterness is unforgiveness. Offense is unforgiveness. You're holding a grief against a fellow brother or a fellow sister. It is unforgiveness, and God can't forgive you. You've got to cleanse that temple out. Some of you have got to end bad friendships. It is destroying you. It is destroying your faith in God. Is everyone okay? You're very quiet today. I want you to, you know, if I'm hitting the nail on the head, come and encourage me. Let me know. Here is the third thing he says to do. Restore the furnishings. That's putting back in place the value of the kingdom and the implements for doing worship. What are the implements for worship? They needed altars. I've been, pre I've been preaching recently about altars. We don't have physical altars. All we have is the altar in our heart. In fact, the altars in Jerusalem, they're destroyed. They're not there. And so the people of Israel have to find other ways to do that. And so we do that in our heart. There's altars, altars of remembrance, altars of prayer, altars of thanksgiving that we create in our heart. And we worship there on those altars, which goes to number four, rekindle the fire of the altar. We have to light these flames. And uh, David recently preached, he says, you've got to keep the flames alive. No one is going to do it for you. It's not going to come just from a preach. I'm hoping that fires do catch, but you've got to keep the flame alive. It's a responsibility of every priest. And this is what he did. Number five, he restored worship. So all the implements are in place. The altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar, is back in place. And so before you can, you can uh, sacrifice, the flames are there, but then there's an element missing. King David understood this well. And what he did was he, he paid for money for instruments. He paid billions of dollars in today's currency to rebuild a temple that he couldn't build. Only his son could. But this is what we're trying to say. Restore worship in your life. Specifically, he, he was talking about worship using instruments. Voices and musical instruments. You know, I see these guys who are worshiping this morning. Our team came, and there were others who were sick and others who didn't come today. And uh, Isaac and Eden and Talia, they're like, what are we going to do? And they were able to put it all together by the grace of God. But my goodness, this is so important to, before the Lord. You might see me. I'm not just trying to encourage you. I myself am going crazy in worship before the Lord. Uh, because it's important in the temple of God that there is worship going on all the time. Do you know what God told David and what he instituted in his time? He instituted 24-7 worship. It never ended. There were teams that would play for whole, you know, eight hours. Then the next team would come for eight hours. And during the nighttime, there was always someone playing and singing songs. Why? Because that's what's happening in heaven right now. Did you know that? When it talks about the cherubim and Hezekiah is praying about the cherubim, their job is to sing these songs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. They're singing songs. And the elders are undone by these songs because God is releasing his glory. And they're thinking, we're under, how can we, how can we sit on these thrones when we're seeing how glorious he is? We are broken and they 
they put their crowns on the ground. It says that, and they're just in their faces worshiping God. That's the picture in heaven. And everyone, because they see the elders, they are so moved, the angels on their faces, the saints that have gone before us on their faces, and they're worshiping God. And I know that as these guys are leading and I'm there, I'm thinking, I'm picturing these saints before God, and he's seated on the throne, and it is this majestic picture. People can see him from miles around in heaven because God isn't small. If you think God is small, that's your picture. No, he's huge. The earth is his footstool. And there are thousands upon thousands. We're talking millions upon millions of people in heaven, all worshiping God. I am undone as I am picturing these things. And step number six for personal revival, consecrate. Consecrate. Consecrate yourself to the service of the Lord. And so the king, he set apart the priests. He said, and he consecrated them to the Lord. What that word means is to set apart as majestic or to set apart as holy to the Lord. It is only used for that. Think about this for a moment. If you are consecrated for the Lord, if you set apart for worship to God, it's like a Bible. Can you imagine taking your Bible to a nightclub and just holding it nice and big, big Bible there? right? You wouldn't do that because everyone recognizes that Bible is holy. But you are the written word and the word is written on your heart. And if the Bible wouldn't be there, you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't take your Bible to the pub and just hold it out like that unless you're some great evangelist wanting to win souls. You wouldn't do that. In the same way, why is the body of Christ there? Because we are consecrated. We are set apart for the Lord. Is everyone okay? All right, let me keep going. And so Hezekiah faces dire circumstances. Why did he face dire circumstances? You notice that the trouble didn't happen before the consecration of the temple. Before he instituted temple sacrifice. Before he destroyed all other altars. It happened after he did that. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever taken a stand for God and found enemies and trouble rising up against you at that time. Some of us gray hairs are like, oh, preach. It's in those times when you decided to make a stand. When you decided to rededicate your life to the Lord, isn't that when the trouble comes? When you decided, you know, I'm going to take a step up. I want to level up in the Lord. I am not going to stay where I am right now. I need to take it to the next level. That's usually when the trouble comes. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And so Hezekiah understood that there's got to be a different way to do battle. He understood it's a battle of altars. When I removed the demonic altars and set up God's altars, I came under attack. I want you to understand this. The altar you feed is the altar that gains power in your life. We have altars that we're constantly sacrificing to. For some of you, it's hobbies. For some of you, it's your career. For some of you, hard to believe, it's your own spouse loving them more than loving God. It can become an altar in your life. And it, it's, you'll know this by the amount of money that you are spending. We're talking about disposable income, not your bills and rent and all that. Your disposable income. Where is that going to? It's telling you what your altars are. Be careful. Be careful. I think hobbies are great. 
I love doing hobbies. I love playing tennis. I'll buy a racket. I'll buy some nice shoes. I'm going to go for it. But God always gets my best because my altar is for him and for him alone. You guys are very quiet with that one. I see that you don't agree with me or, okay, praise the Lord. Thank you so much. It's interesting how trouble has a way of bringing people to God in prayer. After 9-1-1, history records that people gathered together and they began to pray. I mean, they were praying openly on the streets. In fact, it's recorded on TV how Democrats and Republicans, the Democrats are like the Greens, you know, they're so anti-God. And yet they're holding hands with Republicans and every other political leader at the White House on the steps. And they took photos of the uh, footage of this as they are praying openly before God that God would rescue the nation. 911. And yet 20 years later, you see a nation divided. You see a nation attacking. You see a nation that is more demonic than it has ever been before. Because you have to keep the, the altar of sacrifice, that altar of prayer must be the priority in your life. Let me give you some key, some key lessons from this passage that I, wanna, I feel the Spirit wants to give to you. Here's number one. Understand that there will be trouble. Jesus said that there will always be trouble and stepping up makes you a candidate for trouble. The Bible says in verse 1 of our passage that we read, in the 14th year of his reign, Sennacherib the king attacked all the fortified cities. I want to tell you that when you level up, there are attacks that come, but you can't level down. Neither can you st stay in the same level. Do you understand this in the kingdom? The Bible says the kingdom of heaven forcefully advances. You can't stay where you are. You have to stir up the flames of revival. You've got to keep shoving logs in there to burn bonfires so the world can turn and see you burn. You guys are quiet this morning. Can you imagine a people who are lighting fires of revival? I want to tell you, we have 200 chairs that we have set up ready to go that we want to put out in this auditorium. But in order for them to be filled, it has to be a personal revival that happens to you. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm praying for revival for you. Turn to the neighbor behind you and say, I'm praying for the fire revival to burn you. We cannot afford to be bums on pews in church. We are more than that. You are kings and you are priests and we are given an assignment to win a world that is lost. When they die, they're going into a Christless eternity. Your neighbors are going to a Christless eternity. Your workmates are going to a Christless eternity. But we play these games in church like it's okay. Not okay. And we will be accountable for them. And this is why the Bible says the kingdom is forcefully advancing. It cannot go backwards. It cannot remain where it is. It would no longer be the kingdom. You're either advancing or you are going backwards. I want to encourage you with this thought that is so important that you are growing in the Lord. And that's why we are so into discipleship and understanding this. Trouble is something that God will bring into your life to purify you, to take that, that garbage and dross away from your life so you can get rid of the anchors that are keeping you from moving to the next level. Isn't it interesting, in trouble, that is the time when your insecurities come to the surface. 
Trouble is that time when that recurring problem in your life that you refuse to deal with comes to the surface. Somerset, I can't pronounce this properly, Mogam, Mom, the English writer once wrote a story about a janitor at St. Peter's Church in London. One day, one of the clerics, a young vicar, discovered that the janitor was illiterate, couldn't read and write, and fired him. This (laughs) janitor, this janitor was jobless now, and he needed to do something else to raise money, and so he invested his meager savings into a tiny bicycle shop. Well, that shop became so popular that he bought another shop and another shop and another shop until he prospered so much that back in those days in merry old England, he had had several hundred thousand dollars worth of shops, which would be millions and millions of dollars today. One day, the man's banker said to him, you've done well for an illiterate, but where would you be if you could read and write? And the janitor replied, well... I'd be the janitor of St. Peter's Church. Don't stoop for anything less. When trouble comes upon your life, it is a catalyst for change. Oh, man, that's some good stuff. Praise the Lord for it because God is trying to show you what's keeping you back. Amen. Here's the next one. Instead of shrinking back, bring the fight to the enemy. The Bible says, The king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army to Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah wouldn't go to him, the king had to go to Hezekiah. If you don't bring the fight to the enemy, the enemy will bring the fight to you. Prepare for battle. You notice that in the story of David versus Goliath, that David was never one to shrink from battle. In fact, when he heard word that Goliath was causing threats to the people and everyone, the Bible says, all the men feared Goliath, David was different. He says, let me at him. I want to fight him. This says, you can't fight him. No, I want to fight him. What is given to the man who defeats Goliath? I'm thinking, if you're not going to defeat Goliath, Goliath is this big guy. He goes, what's going to defeat? But David, I want you to grab hold of this. He was trained up outside of the spotlight to do battle. When a lion came, there's no one watching. It's him and the sheep, and he's the only one that could fight. The Bible says he would grab hold of that lion, hold him by the mouth. How do you capture a lion by the mouth? How do you capture him at all? And he takes a club and bashes him. And he says, if the lion turns around to try and attack him, he would club the lion to death. And he sa- it says in the Bible he did that to bears as well. Bears. Just think about it for a moment. He wasn't a man yet. He was a teenager. Some of you teenagers are thinking to yourself, I'm too young to make a difference. I'm too young to do the things that these older folks do because I'm just a kid. I'm telling you, no. Now is that time where God can use you. Whoo! Praise the Lord. In a time of battle, the U.S. and during the U.S. Civil War, Abraham Lincoln met with a group of ministers for a prayer breakfast. Lincoln himself was a, prof- a profound Christian and devout man of prayer. If, uh, you know, unorthodox, he was a man of prayer and a man of faith. One day uh, at this prayer meeting, one of the ministers said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. And Lincoln's response showed far greater insight. He says, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side. Oh, my goodness. 
the field commander, the enemy, had no respect for King Hezekiah. But yet, uh, the man of God took it in stride. He, was, he, was, he didn't care about the humility. Even Goliath mocked David. You know that story? He says, you're, just a boy. How, you're sending me a boy to fight me. Does he know who I am? Can he see how huge I am, how experienced in battle? No, it's just a little boy that answered the call to battle. If you can understand that God in you is powerful, you see, Goliath mocked David because he saw David as weak and scrawny and little, and he was right. But the problem was he underestimated the power of the Holy Spirit on David. Never underestimate, like the devil does, the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. You're struggling with this sin that keeps going over and over. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to set you free. Amen. Let me keep going. We'll go towards the end now. The question is, and this is the title of the message, on whom are you depending? The enemy asks really pointed questions, and I want you to understand this. When the enemy comes against you, there's always something to learn. As a great leader once said, never waste a good crisis. Use it as a catalyst for change. And he asked this question, you've been depending on strategy and military strength, but it's empty words. You're depending on Yahweh? On whom are you depending? On whom are you depending? And I want to challenge you with these words. The Bible shows us from this that the enemy knows your business. Some of you think the enemy is just sort of coming against you out of nowhere once in a while. I want you to know you are constantly being watched. And the enemy will try to take you down by familiar doors that have been opened before. If you've opened the doors to offense, if you've opened the doors to holding grudges, if you've opened the doors to alcohol, if you've opened the doors to all these other things rather than turning to God, the devil will come back through the same doors. And I want to challenge you to shut the doors. When we stand to our feet as we begin to draw this message to a close, the Bible says that Hezekiah's response was different from his father's. He did not just pay the bribe money. He did not pay the peace money. He decided, I am going to face my enemy in battle. But my battle is going to be on my knees. Some of you are still trying to fight in the earthly realm and you're wondering why you're not winning because you've got to fight on your knees. And as you begin to cry out to God, the Bible says there were three steps as this man took. Number one, he acknowledged God in humility. Oh, Lord Almighty, Yahweh, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. I am picturing heaven. I'm picturing you seated there. And I see the angels around you. Even they are worshiping you, the elders and the Christians and the believers who are far more noble than me are pouring their hearts out in worship you how can I stand on my legs I should be on my face and praying oh God humility 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 if my people would humble themselves and call on my name and turn and pray I will I will turn and hear their prayer and heal their land oh my goodness 
The Bible says Hezekiah acknowledged the facts. He says, it is true. The Assyrian kings have laid waste to your peoples and the lands. They've thrown gods into the fire. But here's what's different. You are not an idol. You are the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. You cannot be defeated. Though I acknowledge the facts on earth, I may be sick. Though I acknowledge the facts on earth, my marriage may be broken. Though I acknowledge the facts on earth, I'm at the end of my employment here. I know that I serve a God who is greater than this. Hallelujah. And then number three, he says, come God, present your requests, come God. Now, O oh Lord, deliver us so that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are God. He understood this is a matter of pride for God. Your life and your battles are a matter of pride for God. When you surrender your life to him, your battles are the Lord's battles. And when you're being defeated, God is being defeated. It's his battle. And when you start calling God into it, he says, now I can fight. Because God wants to make a distinction between you and the people who don't believe in Yahweh. Let me tell you as I begin to conclude. This is what the scripture says was the outcome of battle. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel kills 185,000 soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up, they found corpses. And then the king of Assyria broke camp and went home. While he was worshiping one day in the temple of his God, his own sons came and killed him, stabbed them with swords. And so, ended the reign of the Assyrian king and so ended the threat against Israel. I want you to know.